This is Biosphere, a Royal Society of Biology podcast that covers the broad field of the life sciences by interviewing bioscience researchers and discussing interesting biological discoveries and science policy. Hello and welcome to our first episode of Biosphere. I am your host Freya and for the launch of this podcast, which is perfectly timed for the start of Biology Week, we will be discussing the world of animal behaviour and inviting a very special guest to talk about his research in this field and also his experience as Chief Scientific Advisor for Government. Spoiler alert, it's our RSB President, Professor Sir Ian Boyd. But to help me kick off the series, I am joined by my colleague Chris, who works in our memberships team. Thanks for getting involved. Thanks for having me. So to start, we'll discuss some interesting research looking into animal behavior. And we found some pretty cool stuff, didn't we? We did. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. So I read a recent study looking at how birds and honey badgers could be cooperating to steal from bees in parts of Africa. That's interesting. So there seems to be a relationship between honey guide birds and honey badgers. The honey guide birds love beeswax but need help breaking open bees' nests to get in it. The theory is that the bird shows a honey badger the way to the nest who rips it open and together they share the rewards. With two different animals like working together for a heist, it kind of sounds like the setup for a Disney movie or something like that. Well, we should, we should probably dive into the, the details first. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, young researchers from nine African countries, led by researchers at the University of Cambridge and the University of Cape Town, conducted nearly 400 interviews with honey hunters across Africa. Most communities surveyed were doubtful that honey guide birds and honey badgers help each other access honey. And the majority, which was 80%, had never seen the two species interact. But, and it's a big but, when surveying three communities in Tanzania, many people said they'd seen honey guide birds and honey badgers cooperating to get honey and beeswax from bees' nests. Sightings were most common amongst the Hadzabi honey hunters, of which 61% said they had seen the interaction. It's really interesting that they were, they were observing those interactions when they were out. I know, I mean, just imagine seeing two animals working together to get honey. That's just... As you said, very Disney-esque. Mm. You wouldn't expect it. The researchers say perhaps only some Tanzanian populations of honey badgers have developed the skills and knowledge needed to cooperate with honey guide birds. And they pass these skills down from one generation to the next. But it's also possible, they say, that badgers and birds do cooperate in more places in Africa, but they just simply haven't been seen yet. Dr. Claire Spottieswood from the University of Cambridge's Department of Zoology and joint senior author of the study said that some have speculated that the guiding behaviour of honey guides might have actually evolved through interactions with honey badgers. But then the birds switched to working with humans when we came on the scene because of our superior skills in subduing bees and accessing bees' nests. It's, a, it's an interesting theory they've come up with to, to explain it. But it is very difficult to test. So it would be amazing if they managed to catch the interaction on camera. Then who knows, it could become a new idea for a Disney movie. Any, any thoughts on a name for the film? Honey Heist? Honey Friends? <laughs> yeah, that, that would yeah. be good. <laughs> but anyway, enough about potential cartoon characters. What did you find this week, Chris? It was really interesting, actually. I was looking at some some research that's been coming out about animal behavior and noticed a trend of a few different ones involving AI. So if I was saying AI, what's the first thing that comes to your, your head? I mean, chat GPT. Yeah, it's it's been everywhere. And I think there's been a lot as well about 
uh, what are all the benefits of AI going to be, but what are the, the risks and kind of anxieties about what our future could hold. So I, I thought it was really interesting to see how it's being used in research and particularly in animal behavior as well. Uh, so I saw some work that's being carried out at Flinders University, and essentially they're looking at how AI and machine learning algorithms might be able to predict the interactions of different species in order to try and predict and prevent extinction events or cascading extinction events. So lots of extinction events can take place by new predators entering an ecosystem, or maybe there are species that disappear and that affects other species there and causes an extinction event as well. And the amount of interactions that we've mapped in any given environment currently is actually quite small of what's in there. There's just so many unknowns, particularly if an invasive species comes in, it's so unknown how it might interact with all kinds of other ones. So it's been proposed that a machine learning algorithm could be used to try and make some of these predictions of interactions of other species. Right. So what, what did they find specifically when it came to AI and machine learning and how to predict these extinction cascades? I think it comes down to how the information they're providing this algorithm and how they're trying to almost allow it to, to train itself. So what they've provided is a list of traits related to species interactions. And they're looking at the traits particular species have and whether those species do or don't interact. So it's trying to make a prediction, which is, okay, this species has this trait. That means it's likely not to interact with another one mm. because we've seen species with this trait and this trait interact. Yeah. Uh, and it's hoped that this can try and be used to make predictions on interactions between species. So if an invasive species were to come in, we know that could cause an extinction event um, because of the way they interact. Or if we were to lose a particular species, the same thing could happen. So I think currently the work's being used around mammals and birds, and it's hoped that it's not just going to predict these extinctions, that it's going to be a chance for us to try and prevent them as well when we know mm what might happen but I think it's one definitely to to keep an eye on yeah and and really interesting that for all the stuff of oh AI is mm. coming it's dangerous there's there's interesting things where it can be a real benefit to us and it's up to us to manage yes yeah definitely I mean AI is everywhere now it's just crazy and yeah I mean obviously when it comes to policy we need to really think about how we're going to manage it but I feel like some people think of AI and kind of go oh that's a bit scary but actually it can be super beneficial. For our first episode, I'm very honoured to bring on to the show our RSB president, Professor Sir Ian Boyd. Ian is a zoologist, environmental and polar scientist who is currently a professor at the University of St Andrews and was the former chief scientific advisor at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, otherwise known as DEFRA. His research focuses on the behaviour of marine predators, marine ecosystem management and the interface between ecology and economics. Thank you for agreeing to be our first interviewee of the series. So one of the first things that I heard about you when I joined RSB is that one of your research projects was putting penguins on treadmills. Could you um, explain a little bit more about that? Yes, I can. It wasn't a massive part of my research. It was one component, but I suppose it's, it's a slightly amusing component. And actually, we also put albatrosses on treadmills as well. 
And I also built the marine equivalent of a treadmill to put seals on them, which was actually a flume, which ran water through a channel to allow animals to swim. The purpose of the exercise, though, was to raise these animals' heart rate in such a way that we could use heart rate while these animals were foraging in the wild to estimate their metabolic rate. And, you know, why did we want to estimate their metabolic rate? Well, my interest was actually in the flow of energy through large-scale marine ecosystems. And I was focused on using the Antarctic marine ecosystem as the exemplar because it's a relatively simple system with very large numbers of what we call top marine predators in them, which includes things like penguins and albatrosses and seals and whales and things like that. Unfortunately, I couldn't put a whale in a treadmill, but we got by with seals and penguins and things like that. So what we were interested in doing was measuring the amount of energy they used And from the other work that we did on their population sizes and what they did while they were at sea and all those sorts of things, we were able to estimate what the total amount of energy was that was moving through their whole populations. And that gave us a view on energy flux through the system. You said in your introduction, one of my interests is is in kind of the economics of nature. And where we in Human society have money as our currency. In nature, it's energy. And so I was interested in following the natural money, the energy, through the system. So putting on penguins and treadmills may seem rather remote from that, but actually it was a way of following the, the energy through the system. And it seems like you've got quite a diverse range of, of interests and research areas that you're involved in. Um, And I read about some work that you'd done with behavioural responses of some highly cryptic marine mammals to sound sources. And I I think most of us are aware with the the direct negative impacts of plastics in our oceans. And there's been campaigns about that for years. But it seems like sound pollution uh, can also be a big issue and something we need to tackle in the marine ecosystems. And I believe there was some research you carried out that looked into how military sonar affects cetaceans and specifically the beaked whales. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and, you know, what's its importance in terms of cetacean behaviour? Well, yes. And actually, it's related to what I did in terms of energy flows, because actually it was really uh, focused on trying to understand how if one disrupted the behavior of animals while they're at sea, their natural behavior, how it reduced the amount of energy they might be able to obtain and therefore made them less viable, affected their survival and that sort of thing. And a central hypothesis is that there is rising amounts of noise in the ocean that are produced from human sources, anthropogenic noise. And there are lots and lots of different sources of noise, but shipping is actually the biggest source of noise. But there are some very high energy sources of noise, which include things like sonars and the highest energy kind of sonars are the military sonars that are used for hunting for submarines. There had been quite a lot of controversy around the potential effects of military sonars on particular species of whales, particularly beak whales, which are very deep diving whales which are extremely cryptic, very, very difficult to see, let alone study. They occur mainly in deep water at the 
edge of the continental slope. So they're well offshore most of the time. And there was some events of stranding of, of these whales, which occurred alongside military sonar exercises. And this created the hypothesis that these exercises had caused these strandings. So partly because the US military was very interested in trying to solve this problem, I and some colleagues picked this up and we performed some experiments to look at how beaked whales reacted to military sonars. It was a, an experiment we actually did in a relatively secret underwater submarine and torpedo range that the US Navy has in the Bahamas in a place called the Tongue of the Ocean, which is nearly 2,000 meters wow. deep because these animals actually dive to the bottom of this trench. But the US Navy has this trench all instrumented with underwater hydrophones on the seabed. And we were able to use this as a very, very large laboratory. This trench is bigger than the English Channel, for example. And we were able to follow these animals while they were being exposed to sonars. We, we had control of the sonars. So we were able to try to understand their behavior in response to those sonars. And what we found was that the animals were actually very scared by the sonars. But they elicited a kind of normal flight response from the animals. It was just like if uh, a gas gun goes off uh, in a field full of pigeons, the pigeons get up and fly away. And essentially, that's what the whales were doing in response to the sonars. Mm. And the way that we then interpreted that was that in certain specific circumstances with certain types of geographies and with certain kinds of behaviors on the part of those people who are hunting for submarines, essentially the submarine hunters were herding these animals into shallow water and that was causing them to strand. So we were able to advise the US Navy on how not to do this and how to reduce the probability of cetacean stranding as a result of sonar exercises. And actually, as far as I know, there's been very few since we did that work, because the US Navy now has a pretty good idea of what not to do. Although having said that, one of the tactics of trying to kill a submarine is actually to chase it into into shallow water yes. and to kill it. Uh, so the two things are evolutionarily equivalent. And when you see frigate trying to hunt a submarine in speeded up motion, it looks very much like a pack of wolves trying to kill a caribou or something like that. The parallels are really remarkable. That's interesting that it's something that you know we can have a practical response to, whether that's always feasible in the situation you're saying is another matter. But it feels like with some other things where we've got human impact like climate change and so on, it's a much less obvious solution for you know what we're meant to do. And this year we've seen huge amounts of environmental variation. We've had very hot summers. Um, and with climate change increasing, I guess, the variability of our environment, how do you think we can characterize the, the functional relationship of animals to their environment? And does studying animal behavior play a part in all of this? Well, yeah, it does. And I think it's important that we are able to try to predict as best we can what the effects of climate change will be on whole ecological communities. Although that is a very difficult thing to do. Mm. Uh, what we tend to do is have a more detailed understanding of certain species and use them as indicators of what will happen with other species that we know relatively little about. And in order to, to, to understand that, we need to 
really know what the as you as you call it the functional response is between the environment and the animal in other words if you change the environment how does the animal change in its behavior its distribution its reproduction all the aspects of its biology and what i think we need to do as much as possible is understand what that functional response is and you know up to a point that's a lot of what i was trying to do when i was studying penguins and seals and mm. albatrosses and things like that was understand how they changed their behavior in response to the amount of food that, that was available within their environment they're homeothermic animals in other words they're animals that maintain a body temperature so they're not so responsive to water temperature for example or air temperature but they are responsive to their food supply but there are many many animals that are not homeothermic in other words they're affected by the temperature of the environment around them much more and uh, you know a lot of work is done by many different scientists to understand what those what are called norms of response would be to different environmental conditions and once you know what those norms of response are then you can have a reasonable idea of what will happen if let's say sea temperature changes by 2 or 3 degrees how does it affect the performance of particular key organisms and then there's a process of interpolation and extrapolation to whole communities there's a lot of uncertainty in those sorts of things but it gives us a clue as to how animal communities will uh, respond to changing environments mm. And uh, I guess with this area of research and all the environmental changes we're seeing and experiencing, what do you think some of the greatest research priorities or challenges that uh, researchers are going to face over the next, I don't know, 10 or 20 years should be? Well, you know, I, I, think, I think there are some massive challenges. And I, I would try to characterize these as being challenges which relate to us being able to adapt as a species. In other words, the sort of challenges that we need in order to be able to transition to renewable energy, make sure the systems that we all rely on to be able to live normal lives are as efficient as possible and are as carbon neutral as possible. So there's a, a huge amount of research to be done in that area. I also think there's a lot of you know, research to be done in the areas of trying to project and project what the future might be like. I think there are always limits to how much we can project forward, but you know, we'll we'll make better decisions within the policy environment if we have better predictive models of what the future is going to look like. And you know, one of the best examples of that is weather forecasting. You know, if we can if we can turn a lot of the other things that we look at in nature into models that can predict or project in ways that we weather and actually climate forecast, then I think we'll be better off because we'll make better decisions. So those two sides of things that I think are, are really key. But of course, all of that is underpinned by imaginative people following their nose through problem solving, doing original science, which underpins everything. You know, none of those things are really possible without the creativity of a science community that is supported by public funding to do things which are simply just interesting. And by doing interesting things, we create networks of knowledge that support the solutions that we're going to find to sustainability, but also making better decisions within a policy context. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and as we've now gone on the topic of policy, I'm going to move slightly away from animal behaviour and dive into science policy as you're well known for serving government as the chief scientific advisor at DEFRA between 2012 and 2019. So some of your accomplishments include input for government strategies like the 25-year environmental plan, chairing the decontamination science assurance group in response to the Salisbury nerve agent attack in 2018 and leading the response for the emergence of ash dieback. So what would you say, and I'm sure this is a very difficult question, but what would you say was your biggest challenge as the DEFRA CSA? Yes, you're right. It's a difficult question, (laughs) but lots of challenges. I think if you were to sort of step back from the the challenge of being a chief scientific advisor and sort of set aside what I would call the tactical issues of which some of which you've mentioned, I would add to that sort of waste pollution, air pollution in particular, badger culling and bovine tuberculosis were, were issues I had to deal with, neonicotinoid pesticides and the whole issue of pesticides in agriculture and actually chemicals in the environment, those sorts of things. So there, there are lots and lots of different things. But actually, stepping back from all those what I would call tactical issues, I think the biggest challenge for anybody who's a scientist who's then embedded within government at a senior level is to sustain your your independence and to sustain your your skeptical approach and your challenge to the system that you're already embedded in it is it is a you know there are all sorts of incentives around to try to reduce the the challenge that you give because people around you don't want to be challenged you know they like to pursue their norms the normal things that they would do. And sometimes actually science, in fact, often science has a lot to say that they need to listen to and perhaps don't want to listen to. It certainly often has an alternative view which needs to be heard. doesn't mean to say that the alternative view always carries the day by any means, but nevertheless, it needs to be heard and to be part of the mix. So maintaining that independence is always one of the most challenging things because sometimes it means being pretty tough, but sometimes you have to disagree with them. Well, as we mentioned, your term in that role ended in 2019, which was just before the COVID pandemic. And I'm sure most people like myself had no idea what SAGE was, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. And then it was thrust into the, the public consciousness where we're hearing updates about SAGE all the time. And you were part of uh, giving this advice to the government as a member of SAGE. So uh, another very easy question for you is uh, from the time in that role. What do you think some of the main lessons we can learn from the pandemic are, maybe both as a society, but then going back into that scientific and government relationship you talked about? Yeah, I I think there are lots of lessons at different levels. You know, I think at the kind of the highest, most strategic level, the lesson is that things like pandemics can hit us. Actually, they can hit us and we, while it may be very tough, we can actually respond to them. I think one of the most remarkable things that happened was that we were able to introduce what's called non-pharmaceutical interventions, but some people call them lockdowns or advising people to to behave in certain ways. And the remarkable thing is that most people did it, mm. you know, uh, and, and actually it saved huge numbers of lives. There's no doubt about that. So I think that the big message is that these things will happen 
And I think that because of the stresses that there are globally, they're going to happen more frequently in the future. And we need to be more prepared for them, both in a sort of tactical sense, in the sense of having more PPE and things like that, but preparing for the future event, not the event that's just happened. But there are other lessons as well. And of course, as a scientific community, there are lessons for us. You know, we were relatively unprepared. We didn't have the vaccines prepared. We knew that COVID-19 or something like it was going to come. And people like me had been saying this for a long time. But within government, we didn't have the policy mechanisms to be able to pick, pick that up, information up and actually action it. So there's, there's quite a strong message there. Yeah, the other message, of course, is that science was really important in digging us out of the hole that we got into. I've mentioned the non-pharmaceutical interventions, all of which are well recorded, everything from face masks all the way through to restricting travel and staying at home orders and these sorts of things. But there was also the vaccines, which really actually kind of solved the problem for us. So there are lots and lots of lessons. The question is whether we really have learned those lessons. Mm. There will be other things in the future. They may be pandemics, but they may be other types of crises that we're not really very well prepared for. We need to become more prepared. Yeah, I mean, I think climate change is very much increasing the emergence of lots of different diseases that we didn't think we would have to deal with. What was it like, that experience, to be part of SAGE, to be giving this advice to the government? And then it's kind of out there then. The, the government's kind of in control of what they're going to do with it. And then people in the public are debating what they think about it. I'm just interested in what that experience was like as a, a scientist that's giving that advice. I think it's fair to say that scientists always find it very challenging when their advice is sought eagerly by the public. And because there is a lot of public debate, and there's a lot of uninformed public debate about what their advice contains. And one of the reasons why SAGE meets in the way it does, and by the way, SAGE meets for any crisis, and usually it meets not so much in secret, but but confidentially, because actually it's really important that the scientists involved are able to iron out their technical debate in a way which allows them to come up with a consensus view to properly reflect within that consensus view what the uncertainties are. And some of those uncertainties are illustrated by deviations in views amongst different members of the scientific community. But mostly they're actually represented by genuine views which everybody shares about the uncertainties in the data that we have and the scientific understanding of a particular circumstance. So one of the biggest problems with COVID-19 was that Sage's job was to advise ministers. It wasn't to stand up in public and tell the public what it thought. Now, I think there's a debate to be had as to whether in those circumstances it should have had the opportunity to provide its advice in the public as well. And I think it would have solved a lot of problems if it had been able to speak publicly about what it was saying to ministers. But, you know, I think those sorts of things will come out as a result of the current inquiry that is going on, for example, because actually there was a lot of things about SAGE that were very satisfactory and it was run extremely professionally. But I think the one thing that was unsatisfactory was the way that SAGE advice was communicated because it was put through a policy or political filter before it got out. And under those circumstances, it was, let's say, less trusted than it might have been. 
But I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater with respect to sages in general. I think sages in general for many, many years have worked extremely well. But in this one, sage came into the public eye. And as a result of that, sage wasn't really very well prepared to deal with the pressures that came onto it in those circumstances. Sure. And that feeds back into what you were saying about whether it's a chance for us to to learn lessons for the future and for, for any future crisis that we might encounter. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, I mean, there was that phrase during the pandemic that ministers use saying, we're just following the science, which... I mean, there's kind of a debate whether that was the appropriate phrase to use because obviously scientists only give advice. They don't actually lead the response to COVID. Ministers do that. They just hear the advice of scientists. Exactly. And the other thing about that statement, which is kind of difficult, is that science is always surrounded by uncertainty. And when ministers say we follow the science, actually the scientific advice will be saying we think it is this way. But actually, there's a possibility it might be another way. Here's the balance of probability Mm. around these sorts of things, because it's rarely that science advice is absolutely black and white. Sometimes it is, but rarely it's it's rarely black and white. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. I think on that note, I'm going to end this interview and say thank you so much for joining. It's been really insightful and it's been so interesting to hear the research you've carried out. And also we appreciate you sharing your experiences working in government. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It's time for our first silver lining of the week. At the end of each Biosphere episode, we will shed light on a new story or overlooked discoveries that are really wholesome and positive, such as helping protect endangered animals or individual acts to promote meaningful change. This week, we'll be discussing how wild horses could be the key to stopping wildfires in Spain. Everyone's probably aware of that we've had a a spike in wildfires Uh, this year. We've had extreme high temperatures. And we kind of touched on some of this in our conversation with Ian about these changes happening. Well, the organization Rewilding Spain have introduced a herd of 10 Chevalsky's horses uh, into the Iberian Highlands. So Chevalsky's horses are the world's last wild horses. Having gone extinct in the wild in their native Europe and Asia, they were successfully reintroduced to the steppes of Mongolia and other sites from European zoos. Returning to the Iberian highlands could be a major boon for the species. They've got a diet that's consisting of like huge quantities of grass and leaves from shrubby trees. This actually serves to reduce the amount of combustible vegetation that's in the landscape. So conservationists would hope that this is going to slow wildfires. Yeah. And I guess the added benefit, or maybe what you'd think normally would be the primary benefit, is that the horses are going to enhance biodiversity of the region. They graze and browse in such a way that they create half-open, half-wooded landscapes that favours scavenging species such as vultures and carnivores such as the Iberian lynx. And most importantly, their dung will also enrich the soil. Mm. (laughs) That's a a great added benefit. Yeah, I mean, it is. Well, that's it this week from me and Chris. I just want to say again, a massive thank you to Ian for speaking with us today. It was great to hear about all of his experiences. And also thanks to Chris for helping me with our first ever Biosphere episode. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, as a reminder to everyone, it's also the Royal Society of Biology's Biology Week this week. So please do check out our website and see how you can get involved with what's going on. 
Yes, and also do look us up on our socials as we will be running our yearly hashtag I am a biologist campaign to celebrate the diversity of people and roles across the biosciences. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us for our next one on plant health where we'll be discussing the importance of managing invasive species, plant leaf microbiomes and the interesting case of rice blast fungus. Until next time. 